Well, good morning and happy new year to you. It's a privilege to be with you again this morning. My name is Brandon Barrett. For those of you that are visiting, the lead pastor here. And we're thankful that you're with us. Thanks for coming and joining us for worship. Uh, we're going to be in the book of John this morning, the Gospel of John in chapter 1. If you're using your pew Bible, you'll find that on page 886 of that Bible. Uh, and just tell you a little bit about what's coming up. In the months ahead, we're getting ready to start a, a series on the book of Mark. We'll be in John this morning, but starting next week, uh, we're starting a series on the book of Mark. And between now and uh, through May, we're going to go through the first half of that book. We're going to be talking a lot in these next few months about what Jesus said and what he did and who he was and who he is. Um, so we'll be turning to that. You might want to start uh, if, you're, uh, if you find it helpful to be reading ahead. We'll be in Mark chapter 1 next week. But as we said this morning, we're in John chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 18. Let me pray for us, and we'll read and jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and we come to one of the most theologically profound passages in all of Scripture. And so we pray that you would open it up to us uh, today as we wrestle with it and look at it and hear about who you are and what you have done. Um, Give us eyes of faith, renewed faith. Would you encourage us? you remind us of who you are and what you've done for us. So we look to you expectantly in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. John chapter one, verses one through 18. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. And it's given to us for our good and for his glory. Well, everybody, uh, at least everybody here, you, you survive Christmas and, and New Year, right? Or at least barely. Uh, if, if you're like me and like my family, we, we actually uh, traveled over Christmas. And when we visited several states, both families, uh, lots of extended family. And we had a great time, but it just went fast. And it was a blur. And maybe Christmas was sort of that way for you as well. Sometime in uh, November, for some people, people start shopping for Christmas. In my case, somewhere in late December, you realize Christmas is upon you and Things only speed up from there, and then suddenly it blazes past, and then here it is, Happy New Year. We're in a new year, and 
yesterday we took down the Christmas tree and the decorations, and thankfully, I don't know who did it. Somebody cleaned up our church and put down decoration, took down decorations as well. Thank you for whoever did that. But, you know, it just comes in a blaze, and then it's gone. And we kind of scratch our heads maybe after Christmas and go, what exactly just happened there? Uh, and so that's actually what we're talking about this morning, what John chapter 1 talks about. What, what exactly happened right there? Um, Two weeks ago, when right before Christmas, we went to Luke chapter 2, and, and we read the, the narrative of the Christmas story. So we talked about what, what happened at Christmas. Uh, we, you know, we read about Mary and about Joseph and the, the journey to uh, Bethlehem, to uh, a, a long night in a stable and a baby born in a manger, for sh- about shepherds and angels coming and singing God's glory. We, we read about the what of Christmas. But when we come to John chapter 1, where we are this morning, he tells a Christmas story also. But rather than giving all the details that we get, for instance, in Luke chapter 2, he comes and tells us not, not merely or not only what happened at Christmas, but what it means. And so maybe it's a good passage for us as we uh, have, have blazed through Christmas and now look back. What exactly happened? What, what did all that stuff mean? John chapter 1 reminds us. John tells us what Christmas means by telling us three things in particular about Jesus, this baby that was born in the manger. Uh, We're going to see here that he tells us that Jesus is God, that Jesus brings God to us, and that Jesus brings us to God. Those three things. So first, uh, he tells us that Jesus is God. Looking especially at verses 1 through 5. The divinity of Jesus, the godness of Jesus, is, is something that is throughout the pages of the New Testament. Some places spoken about uh, very explicitly and some places where we see it demonstrated in Jesus' actions and his words or spoken about him in testimony that's given about Jesus. But here in this passage, verses 1 through 5 and, and on through the rest of the passage, it's one of the most explicit places in the whole Bible that speaks of the actual divinity of Jesus. John lays it out for us right here. He tells us that Jesus was God. We see it right here in verse 1. It starts here. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. When John says this, the beginning, he's talking about the beginning, capital V, capital beginning, the very start. And he's purposely echoing the words uh, that we find in Genesis chapter 1 when it speaks about the beginning of creation. Listen to the similarity. Here's what we get in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the beginning. And that's what John goes back to tell us here. In the beginning. He says He tells us about the story that happened before Christmas. He winds back the clock, not only before Christmas and this night uh, in Palestine as Jesus was born into a manger. He goes back and speaks about the beginning of Christmas before the beginning of time. He says, in the very beginning, the Word, whom in a moment he's going to identify with Jesus. In the beginning, in the start of things, when all the lights came on, Jesus was there. The Son of God was there. That is the true start of Christmas. It says, the Word was there. And he speaks about, as again, we're going to come to see about uh, the Son of God embodied in Jesus as the Word, which is sort of an interesting way to talk about him. I mean, we don't really use those kind of languages. We have nicknames for each other, but you don't call somebody, the, you know, the, he's the Word. Uh, but, but it points to something significant that we reveal ourselves to each other through our actions, to be sure, but we reveal ourselves most deeply through our words. 
Now, that's kind of the opposite of the conventional wisdom where we say, uh, you, you know, that, um, that actions speak louder than words. And, and that, we, we say that when we see somebody's words and they don't match up to the way they really live out their life, that our lives betray something about us. But the truth is, if we had no words, we would be very limited in what we know about each other. Maybe you've had that experience of going to another country or meeting someone from another country that doesn't speak your language and you're trying to get directions you're you know you're you're making hand motions you're pantomiming things you're acting silly trying to make yourself communicate and you've maybe had that experience where that person sort of gets what you're saying and you're kind of communicating but not really and and maybe you realize you know this here's somebody who's gracious and kind i bet if i could talk to this person i'd really like them here's a nice person but i'm never going to really know because i can't talk to them because we reveal ourselves most when we speak And that is what's getting pointed to here is that God is a God who speaks. And all through the Bible, God's words have incredible power. Back in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the world, what does it say? God said, let there be light, and there was light. God's words are powerful. They do things. And God powerfully sends his word to his people. Think most clearly about maybe the prophets in the Old Testament who come on the scene as God's appointed representatives, and they start by saying things like this, Thus saith the Lord. People of Israel, God's people, here is what God says to you. He speaks. God doesn't leave us in the dark about what He's like and what He expects and what it means for us to be in relationship with Him. He speaks to us. He comes to us in His words. And so when John picks up on this theme, he says that He is the Word. We speak... In droves ourselves, don't we? Think about all our communication with each other. Elizabeth and I were cleaning out a closet last night and pulling, starting to pull down some of those boxes, trying to figure out what we could throw away. And we found this enormous box filled with letters that Elizabeth had written over the course of her life, or letters that had been sent to her. And there was a small subset of that that was the box of the letters that she and I had traded for so many years before we were married. Uh, and then all these other letters, some of which sadly were to other boys in the past. But, you know... <laughs> I've known her for 18 years. I'm mostly over that now. So, But, you know, in a, in a world of text messages and emails, we forget how much we actually speak. And they're seen in this box, these, these letters upon letters of we are people who reveal ourselves. And God reveals himself to us in his words and in the word. He speaks to us. And so John identifies God here and is going to say God in the flesh as the word. But didn't just say God was the Word. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and here we tap into one of the central mysteries of the Bible, and certainly it would have been for the first believers in the New Testament, because they were strict monotheists. There is only one God. And yet for them, when they meet Jesus, they see that there is more to God than they knew. Because here they talk about Jesus and his divinity, and they some say, somehow say that, God, that Jesus, as God in the flesh, is, is both God in substance, yet there's somehow diversity in that. And it's, the church has tried to explain this over the years using the term the Trinity, that there is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, distinct persons. How does that fit together? I have no idea. But that's what the Bible presents for us, that even this picture of who God is is so much richer and more nuanced than even Old Testament believers really understood fully by any means. He says the God, the, this word was God, and he was with God at the same time. One God and three persons. And then he goes on and says that this word created all things. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made, that the Son of God, 
the Word who became flesh in Jesus was the creator of all things. Do you think about that when you think about Jesus? It's the very same theme that's picked up in other places in the New Testament, one of which is Colossians chapter 1. Paul says this, For by Him, the Son of God, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things. In Him, all things hold together. He's talking about Jesus, the Son of God. He said that He existed before time and He was the agent of creation. It's what the author of Hebrews says. Long ago, and many... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He said, this is Jesus, the creator of all things. And not only is he God, he's uniquely God. Jesus doesn't come and give us a picture of here is the divinity that is inherent in all mankind. If only we could tap into it and realize it. John tells us that Jesus, God in the flesh, is the one and only Son. That's his point in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father. In Greek there, it literally says, the one and only of the Father. Same term that John picks up in chapter 3 when he says, God so loved the world that He gave us His one and only Son. His only Son. This is it. Jesus, God in the flesh, He is unlike anyone else. He's God. There are two, at least two, there are many, implications for what that means for us. And one is simply this. This is really true. If Jesus is God, then then we've got to decide what we're going to do with Jesus. Because it really demands a response from us. Uh, Here's a... C.S. Lewis put his finger on this in Mere Christianity, a quote that will be familiar to, to many of us. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really, really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, he's putting his finger on this. If if Jesus is who he said he is and who the Bible tells us he is, then it demands a response from us. The other thing about that is John tells us that Jesus is God, and that means this for us, that everyone has a relationship with Jesus. Everyone has a relationship with Jesus. Now, here's what I mean by that. Everyone has a relationship with God. Because there is one God, the creator of all, and he is in relationship with each of us. That relationship might be healed and whole or broken and fractured. It might be uh, a relationship characterized by darkness and absence or a relationship characterized by light and the light of his presence. Another way the Bible puts it is that might be a relationship characterized as enemies of God or a relationship characterized by being children and friends of God. But everyone is in a relationship. And if Jesus is God, that means that, that we're all in relationship with him. So the question is not do you have a relationship with Jesus. It's what is the character of that relationship that you already have with Jesus and doesn't need to change and change radically. There is no neutral ground 
And that's John's point. He tells us as much later in the gospel. He says this in John 20. These things about Jesus are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Here, John, he says, that's why I'm telling you this, so that you will know that Jesus is God and that through Him you will have life. Okay, so the first thing we see here is that Jesus is God. It's the meaning of Christmas. And the second thing we see is that Jesus brings God to us. Look with me at at verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, the Word became flesh. It became like us. It became one of us. It took on true humanity. God, here the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, stepped into a real body with a real human nature became one of us. God and man together in one person. And here again, another central mystery of the Bible. God did not stand far off, but He came. And He became flesh. Not only that, He goes on and says that He dwelt among us. He lived among us. Um, Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase of uh, the Bible, the message, translates this verse this way. It says, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's what Jesus did. That's what God did when He saw us as lost and strained people. He came and He took on flesh and He moved into the neighborhood. Now, it would have had a different resonance, an additional resonance, for the people who read this in John and who were schooled in the Old Testament because they they would have known as they read the Greek word here for dwelt among us or lived among us that it literally, literally means to pitch a tent. Which again, you know, to us it makes it sound like God's gone camping. And that's not what, what they would have heard exactly. What they would have heard was, God's come and pitched a tent, a tabernacle among us. And it would have brought back the flood of associations from the Old Testament when God's people leave Egypt and slavery, when God calls them out and frees them. They spend 40 years wandering around the desert and God is with them every step of the way. And he instructs them to build this tent called a tabernacle. That's what John is referring back to. And this tabernacle was the place where God's presence came and met with his people in a very tangible way. Um, in Exodus, 30, or Exodus chapter 40, at the end of all the instructions that God gives about how to build the tabernacle, here's what happens once they build it. And it is dedicated for its purpose. It says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. See, when God's people build this tabernacle, God comes there and resides there in this visible way. It represented His presence among His people. And so when John says, the Word took on flesh and tabernacled among us, said there is a new and better tabernacle. There is a new and better manifestation of God's presence. There is a new and better God coming to us. It says here in Exodus, they see God's glory. That's exactly what John says they saw as well. 14, verse 14. We have seen His glory. Glory of the one and only. That is what we see in Jesus. That God has come to us in the flesh, to dwell with us. And He's come to make God known to us. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is... No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This 
this word who is God and with God, who comes in the flesh of Jesus, he's come to make God known, to show him to us. Nobody had ever seen God before. Now you get pictures in the Bible where people see a glimpse, sort of a distant glimpse and they're undone. Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has this vision of God, he sees his, his robe filling the temple and he's undone just looking at his garments. And Moses, out in the desert, pleads with God. He says, let me see you face to face. God says, if you were to see me, it would kill you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you in this cleft of the rock and I'm going to walk by in a manifestation and I'm going to let you see the backside of me. If you were to see my face, you would be undone. We cannot look at God. Yet here we have Jesus. Verse 18, no one has seen the Father, but Jesus there with the Father who comes to make Him known to us. He's come to reveal the Father to us. Later in the book of John, one of the disciples, Philip, in this moment of struggle, says to Jesus, look, if just show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus says to Philip, have you been with me so long and you don't know this? When you see me, you see the Father. I am showing you who God is. I am the revelation of who He is. I am God coming to you. He makes God known. Okay, implications for us of Jesus bringing God to us. God is not remote. He's not remote. That means a couple things for us. One is that He understands us experientially. He gets us. He understands us. He knows what it's like to walk in our shoes. He knows what it's like to be human and frail. He knows what it's like to walk a road of difficult suffering. He knows what it's like to experience the very real joy and gladness that comes into our lives. And he knows what it's like to experience the very real sorrow and frustration and harm that comes into our lives. He knows our own frustration and anger over the brokenness of the world. Our own sorrow, the death of a loved one. Our own sorrow of being misunderstood at other, by others. Our own struggles with finances. Our own struggles with jobs, with temptations, with ourselves. He knows. He understands. He is not remote. In fact, he was so committed to being in the flesh, to being here, to being one of us, that he did not stay at a safe distance. But he made himself, uh, in, the, in the words of Tim Keller in a recent sermon, he, Jesus' the word becoming flesh means that he became vulnerable and killable. That's what happened when he became flesh. He took on our nature, not simply so that He might live the lives that we live and better, but that He might die a death that we deserve. But what He did not do was stay remote and safe. Jesus brings God to us. But not only that, and this lastly, God, Jesus brings us to God. Because bringing God to us is clearly not enough. Did you notice that? Look, look again at verses 9 through 11, what happens when Jesus comes. It says, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, that, but the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. He wasn't received by the world, and even by His own people, uh, the Jewish nation who would have been expected to recognize Him. We didn't take Him in. We didn't receive them. We didn't take the gift. And maybe you can imagine that, though my kids wouldn't after this Christmas, but maybe you can imagine hypothetically that there is a present that remains under the Christmas tree, unopened, untouched. 
That's what happens here when God comes to us. That it stays there, untouched and unopened. We need someone not only to bring God to us, but to bring us to God. And that's the second thing that the tabernacle represented. When it said that God came, that Jesus came and dwelled among us, tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was where God came to meet with His people. But the tabernacle was also where God's people were brought to God by the priest. Because the tabernacle is where sacrifices happened. Sacrifices to atone for sin, for relational break between us and God. And there was a priest there that had to conduct those sacrifices. You couldn't just simply come in and experience God's forgiveness without sacrifice. And you couldn't offer it yourself. There had to be someone to bring it for you to God. And that was the job of the priest. You see, so in this tabernacle, we both have this picture of God's presence. But God dwelt primarily in the inner part of the, tem- of the tabernacle, separated from everyone else by a thick curtain. And only one person could go there and only once a year. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and bring it in to the Holy of Holies where God dwelt. And he would leave. That was the only access they had to the actual center core of God's presence. So he was there but distant at the same time. And what we see in Jesus is that God is brought to us, but at the same time we are brought to God. And that distance between us and God is broken down. It's torn apart because Jesus brings us to the Father. He came to bring us to Him. And He brings us into new relationship. That's what we see in verse 12, what it means to come in to this new position before God. To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. See, God comes in the person of Jesus and calls us to life. He says, unlike any other birth you go through, it's not that your parents decided it's time to have kids. It's not through the will of a person. He says, we are born of God, that he is the one who brings about our spiritual birth. And Jesus talks about that later in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. John 15, he says to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. See, he says that we are desperately in need of this relationship with God to become children of God and that he gives it to us as Jesus brings us to God. And in the words of verse 16, In him we receive grace upon grace. The doors of grace are thrown open for us in the person of Jesus. Okay. Two challenges that leaves us with, that we are brought to God. In in one way, it challenges our love of our own independence. What do you mean somebody has to bring me to God? You know, I'm 21st century, Western, cultured, independent American. What do you mean somebody has to do this for me? What do you mean I can't do it myself? See, this is the great leveler in the body of Christ. We are all brought to God by Jesus. In other words, none of us did it right. None of us did it right. Now, some of us are theologically sophisticated, or at least enough to know this, that that we wouldn't really say that we did it right. But it also means this. We didn't do it righter than the next person either. I mean, of course we're not perfect, but we did all right. Reminds us that we are all people who must be brought to God. Challenges our independence. 
And maybe it also challenges our unbelief about God's love. And maybe for some of us, it challenges us personally in this. I can't believe that God would really, actually love me. Not like that. Not with my past. Not with my struggles this week. If you could just hear the things that go through my head, if you could just see what I've done, the thoughts that I've thought, if you could just see my doubts, you you hear that interior monologue. For some of us, it speaks very loudly. God's love couldn't be great enough for me. But don't you see what it says right here? We must all, we must all be brought to God by Jesus. And He is strong enough to do the work. And He's strong enough for you. He's strong enough for me. But then maybe it doesn't challenge some of us, maybe not just personally, but also it challenges us for others as well. Can't believe that God could possibly do something in the life of that person, that friend of mine, that relative of mine, that co-worker of mine, that neighbor who lives next door to me. There's no way, no way God could do something there. Have we forgotten that we all must be brought to God by Jesus? He was strong enough for you. And he's strong enough for that person as well. See, it calls us to hope. Hope in God's love for us, for others around us. New Year. Christmas, a blur in the past. What did it mean? These things here that we see about Jesus, about this baby in the manger, that he was God, that Jesus is God, and that he brings God to us, and that he brings us to God. As we step into a new year, as we step into a number of months looking at one of the Gospels, may this be something that is more precious to us and rings more loudly and truly to us. This is our Savior. This is what it means to experience and know and walk in and grow deeper in His love for us. May that be what 2010 holds for us as we experience this whole year, what it means to live in light of Christmas and the fact that Jesus has come. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and and we thank you that you have come in the flesh to bring God to us and so importantly to bring us to God. Would you give us great hope in your unconquerable love? And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.